0: As you guys know, at the end of every devotional series that we do, we have those who are sharing those devotions uh, come up, and we do a panel discussion on the topic, and we were talking about misinterpretation of Scripture, and all of that firmly within this this series, seven things that we want Christians to know about the Bible. And so all of today is, is, uh, we've got questions, we've got about six questions. Whether or not we get through those questions is really not the point. Uh, The questions themselves, believe it or not, are actually not the point. They're really conversation starters. Uh, As Ethan pointed out this morning, it's really an important thing for us to understand. So we want to begin a conversation along some very, uh, I think, very important lines. So Jacob is going to walk us through those questions, and everybody up here is just going to kind of share where they feel they should, so... Why don't you take us away, sir, and we'll get going.
1: Um, To build off what Nathan said, I did want to say, like, this is something that we want to have a discussion with you guys about. So if there's something that comes to mind as we're talking through this, please don't hesitate to come and talk with us. Give us your ideas, because we want to continue this discussion. That being said, our first question is, how has misinterpretation affected your understanding of the Bible or
2: God? And provide an example. So when it comes to this question, I it, I was going back and forth trying to decide um, if I was going to mention a an, an misinterpretation that has affected my understanding of the Bible or God, because I was kind of back and forth. So I settled on this. So there's a scripture in John 14, uh, verse 13, that says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, as a fairly new believer back in the back in the day, um, I read that scripture and I was very zealous and not wise, uh, and I misinterpreted that and I looked at that and said, "Oh, cool! Like that's that's a pretty cool thing to have in my in my back pocket. If I ask something in Jesus' name, then like it's going to come true because you take it for face for face value. What happens with that is you look you look at that and you pray and you watch others pray and those prayers aren't being answered and so then you you have to decide well either the, the bible is not true which means you th- you throw the whole thing out and you don't listen to any of it or the god of the bible is a liar and it starts to affect our relationship with with our heavenly father because we're like okay he's obviously not who he says he is because he doesn't even answer the prayers that are mentioned in Jesus' name like this like this scripture says. So it pushes pushes us away from the relationship that we're called to with Him, just because we choose to misinterpret and not not dig a little deeper.
3: I'll jump in. This was an easy one for me. <laughs> uh, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, you might say, Barney, how in the world can you misinterpret that scripture? This is probably one of the most well-quoted, it is the most Googled verse in the scripture. That was Tim Tebow's fault. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway. And and it is uh, it is probably the most well-known. I, I didn't grow up in church, and I could still quote this by heart. So uh, I had no Bible knowledge whatsoever, but I could quote John 3.16. So uh, some of you may know, and I, I, that uh, some of you that know me very well know that for a long time, I struggled with, the, uh, uh, with believing that God could actually love me. And there was a point that I had to get to where I, I really had to rely on God for that. But John 3.16 is one of the verses that gave me insight, even though I was misinterpreting it for years and years. Now, I believed, and I want you to hear me out, because maybe you believe the same thing. I believed that this verse was clearly telling me how much God loved me. Is that not what you think it's doing? That's what I thought it was doing, but was shocked to find out that that's not the case. It's not the case. What am I talking about? It's one little word that changes the understanding. It is the word so, S-O, S-O, for God so loved the world. You might be saying, well, That's what it says, Barney. God so loved the world. It's telling us the amount of love that God has for us. That's not correct, if you thought that. The Greek word translated so is hotos, which means this way, this way. So the correct translation of John three sixteen should be, and there are many translations now that have it corrected, it should be, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son. So how does this change the meaning of this text? Sending Jesus is how God expressed his love for us. We're, it's, God's love is not some... And I may have it didn't out. change. That, okay. God's love is not some sappy emotion... It's 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 a demonstrated historical fact. It's not it it's uh, it, it it isn't em- emphasizing some strong emotion that God had. It's it's God sent His Son. That was real. That didn't rely on your emotion or my emotion or how I interpreted this verse. It's unveiling how God's love has actually taken place. So. To me, when you understand what this means, this is really practical. When you understand, it actually means more. This verse has more meaning to it. When you understand that God demonstrated his, his love in this way, that he sent his son to die for us. I have totally misinterpreted that verse. I've probably done it here before. Uh, I, I, I think that John 3.16 is saying, look, don't doubt, don't wonder. Jesus' presence on this earth is, can tell you, should show you, that God loves you. That helped me.
4: I think for me, the, the, one of the big things is conflating um, something that's true about God and applying it to myself. Jesus never fails. Therefore, we as Christians won't fail. Because mm-hmm. we're on the winning team. Right. Um, James fails all the time, and the older James gets, the more he has to wrestle with the fact that he's a failure. In whether that's you've disappointed someone in your your marriage, your children, your work. Ever had a business fail? I think this is where a lot of people outside the church really struggle with us when we start quoting things like uh, Philippians four nineteen. God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in the glory of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so we hear the every need part, and we don't pay attention according to his riches, which means he's the determiner of what's coming into our lives. Yeah. And and so it's it's that self-talk where I, I take something that's true about God and I try to apply it directly to myself. And he's not talking to me right. in that section of Scripture. Right. And that can really demotivate people. And I've, I can't tell you how many people that it— at work, have given up on God and given up on the Bible because they say he's not true. He's a liar. Yeah. And they'll take these kinds of verses and they'll say, see, he didn't give you everything you need. You went through a bankruptcy. He didn't give you everything you needs. My marriage blew up. He didn't give you everything you needs. My kids walked away from the church. Yeah. Well, that's not Jesus failing. Yeah. Uh, that's human failure.
0: I think it's that that nuance coupled with what um, what Dylan was sharing before that... We tend to put things in, in false dichotomies all the time. So we tend to say um, God is either a genie in a lamp, right? He's going to give us all that we ask according to his will, all that we ask. Uh, or we think that the Bible is interpreted um, as long as, okay, so, so one is anything we ask God is going to give. We know that's manifestly false. And then we say, but as long as we pray it according to God's will, then it will be given. And most of us pray like this. But the problem is that God is wiser than we are. And like any good parent, uh, there is a third option. And that is, there is something, there are many things that are according to his will, but they might not be right for you at that time. And so the Bible does say, uh, ask for things in my name and pray according to my will, and it will be given to you. Um, But I have a quick question. How many of you have prayed things according to God's will and it's not been done? Something you know is absolutely God's will, like, uh, you know, some sort of breakthrough in your life or your understanding of him or your marriage or whatever, and then it falls apart. Uh, God is not telling us, he is not telling us he is a genie in a lamp. He is not telling us he is a genie in a lamp as long as we'll pray biblical prayers, He's telling us that we should pray according to his will, that we should seek him. But he's also telling us in the greater interpretation of scripture that he loves us enough that he loves us in a certain way that he's going to give us what we need. Which ties in with Barney's passage because he loves us in such a way as to die for the sins of his people, right? We wouldn't have asked for that. We would have just asked for a really cool you know, uh, cosmic spaceship to take us to heaven, right? That's a much easier way to do this. (laughs) But he sends his son to die on a cross and to fulfill all promises and all of this together. So this is, again, how right interpretation is going to change your view of things. You don't need to be disappointed in this life. You don't need to live in a way where uh, your hope is perpetually deferred, and your heart is just constantly sick until you lose faith in God. What needs to happen is you need to understand the Bible rightly, and when you do, you understand God is good, and he 's still in control, even when things don 't uh, seem to go your way. Amen
5: Notice sometimes during our and what we would consider the misinterpretation of Scripture is that the entire meaning of the verse is often left unchanged. It's just what is emphasized in the meaning. Taking Barney's point here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, for God loved the world this way. Is the whole meaning of the Scripture changed there? Is the Scripture really changed? Mm -hmm. No, but the emphasis in the Scripture has changed. This is us thinking about how much Jesus loved the world. You're thinking about how he loved the world. It's just, where's the emphasis here? So you would be thinking about, man, God loved the world a lot. And now we're thinking about, all right, what's that love look like? That love looked like somebody coming and living a life here. He didn't just show up and die. So now we're thinking about, man, God's love is so long-suffering with us. That is so long-suffering with us. Even that little switch, that little flip, that little idea plays into what James was talking about. Because now we're thinking about, man, we're frustrated, or maybe we feel let down half the time it's with our own actions. I mean, with me it was, because I'm struggling with things, I was told God's going to set me free, it's going to be a flip switch, and then I'm walking, you know, the Christian life, or at least thinking I am, and wondering, what's going on? Why am I still struggling? And then when you have these little emphasis changes in scripture, and you remember that God's love is long-suffering with you, it's huge. And if we
0: do want to talk about the magnitude of God's love, we don't have to set ourselves at odds with our brothers and sisters. John 3.16 is not talking about how much God loves you, so sit down and shut up. That's not what Barney would say. Instead, what we're doing is going, here's how he showed his love for you. But if you want to know how much he loved for you, how much he loved you, the scripture also tells you that. It says, no greater love has anyone than this, than one who would lay down his life for his friend. If you want to know the magnitude of God's love, God's love? The greatest love possible is one who would lay down his life for his friend. What did Jesus do? That very thing. So God so loved the world that he laid down his life. How much does he love you? With the greatest love possible. You can derive all of that from right interpretations of scripture, or you can miss the point and you can get lost in the minutia of, you know, how special I am to Jesus, right? You're his image bearer. You were born Special, if you want to look at it that way, right? But we have this obsession in, especially in our culture, where everything is about us, and and we're just missing it. And your emphasis is really beautiful. That says, "Listen, here's the love and how He had to do it." <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah,
2: Adam,
6: I, I uh, on. uh, I just want to kind of go back to the root of what we're talking about too, of of the, you know misinterpretation and how it's represented to you and and where you stand at and. And just to piggyback on every single thing you guys said is, I'm very lucky to have uh, kind of grown up as an adult. I didn't go to church really as a kid. As an adult in a church where there was, you know, sound scripture and and good teachers. And when there was mistakes, there was correction. And and I've been really blessed by that. Uh, But one of the things that I kind of look at in in misinterpretation when when things aren't necessarily misinterpreted again you take things out of context in your own life and you apply your own rules to it because that's just what we all do it's just kind of human nature and uh we don't realize the lessons that you learn through the scriptures that take time like romans 12 like don't be conformed to this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind like like that's something that is a process for a lot of people a process for me so like i hear something and my first thought is, I can't wait to get that. I can't, you know, I can't wait to follow God and, and see all these blessings in my life. And then you quickly realize what you think is a blessing might not be. Um, and you kind of quickly change. And, and one of the things that I go back to, what Dylan was talking on a little bit, is um, uh, Matthew six thirty three. but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all things will be added to you. Well, then you, you read that scripture out of context and you go, cool, I'm going to get a new car. You know, like like that's I think that's everybody's realistic mindset is like if I live a life that's totally and pleasing to the Lord, I'll get all these things. But really the context of that verse even is he's talking about no, you don't need to be anxious for the things that you need, like food and water and just anxiety in general. They're they're fretting about are they gonna survive, not whether or not they're gonna have, you know, the luxuries of their lives. But like that's again, that's going back to misinterpretation is you see all that at once, but then it takes years for you to come to that full circle of
2: understanding. That's huge for me. Amen. So I wanted to kind of bounce back to Barney's point for a second, because I I was sitting here thinking about, you know, John 3.16, which is a great example um, for this question, but I was thinking about how misinterpreting that can affect affect our life because you were talking about how you interpreted it in the in the beginning of oh, this is how much god loves me like this is this is this is you know god loves me this much but really it's it's showing that he does love us by what has what has been done and and at first at first glance you don't understand how that changes things for you you don't how, you don't you, we don't understand how that may change our relationship with the lord so i are sitting here kind of chewing over that and it's one thing the bible tells us constantly that God loves us we know that but that's it's easy to doubt that if you you could tell somebody that you love them but if that's all you do you doubt that every day I mean I, I'm I'm sure each guy up here has struggled with that that idea of like do they really love me does God really love me but if we rightly interpret John three sixteen and see that it's not saying that God just loves you it's saying that God's love is proven to you by him sending his son it's a whole different thing because now you don't have to sit there and wonder, does God really love me? Because John 3.16 is telling you, yes, he sent Jesus. It's a perfect example of that. So, Cool. So the verse that
1: came to mind for me, and I won't get too much into it because I'm going to talk about this next week uh, when I preach. But um, Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. There's something as a high school student that I was like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's all for me. But see, I was reading something into it, and so, which leads us to the second question. So we're talking to be talking about confirmation bias, and the definition is the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's own existing beliefs or theories. So our question is, give me an example of how confirmation bias has affected the interpretation of Scripture. So let's go back to Jeremiah 29, 11. If I believe that God has a plan for me and that he is going to provide me wealth and a future and hope, and only in that context, I'm going to look at that verse and go, yeah, there we go. That's exactly what I'm talking about. But you realize that these people were a people in captivity. This is something that they, is a future, they needed something to hope for in this moment. They didn't have something to look forward to.
3: You know, I'm glad you brought that scripture up. That's, I knew that was your life verse, Jacob. I knew it. it uh, that uh, scripture was one that actually, uh, it took them 150 years to, for God to fulfill that promise to, to them. That wasn't to you or me or anybody that's alive today. But uh, let me set up a scenario with regard to the interpretation of, of scripture. A group of people gather and you see this happen a lot in, uh, in small groups. That You see it happen in Bible studies. So they, gra- they, they gather for food, fellowship, and Bible study. And the leader reads a passage of Scripture and says, Now tell me what this verse means to you. This, this is a situation. If we took that situation and put it in any, other form, in any other realm of life, driving down the road, what does my driving mean to you, Sarah? What does it mean to you? You're a bad what, exactly, yeah. So if we put it in, in teaching, in anything, the problem is uh, we, don't, we don't like it when others treat our words, what we say. They say, no, I don't think you meant that. I know better than you do what you meant when you said that. That, that can't be. That's okay, that seems like it's okay in, in, in all, everywhere. And you can't do it in a Bible study, but boy, when it comes to interpreting things out of the Scripture, it's open season. Just make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Do you know that there's not a Scripture in the Bible that you can take that meaning, and, unless it is what the original writer or conveyor of that Scripture meant, you can't make it mean something else you don't have that right. Nobody has that right. And that's, that's hard for us because we take a scripture like Jeremiah and say, oh man, I, I, now don't get me wrong, God does have a plan for you. God does have, have plans for you. But that scripture wasn't written to you. That scripture was not written to you. And we take those things and we just take them out of the context of who they were for, the context of who they were written to, and we say, man, he must be talking about me. He's not. It's a hard thing to realize that not everything in the Bible. There's a whole lot in the Bible that's not about me. It's a whole lot. It's not about me. It doesn't. It. It's not written to me. All of the Bible is written for you, but none of it was written to you. Do, do you does that make sense? It does. Okay, good. Two people
2: shook their heads. Yes. So I'm,
3: doing, <laughs> I'm getting it. Right okay.
2: <coughs> so I think I'm been so it's I know what we're saying is, can be difficult because when we're talking about confirmation bias, it's literally us taking the the things that we've learned from our experiences in life, the things that we've learned from other people, and we're, we're applying those to Scripture. That's a terrible thing to do, but that's also what we do in life. We use our experiences to make judgment calls in the way that we live our life, the things that we say. So yes, we are asking you to do exactly the opposite of what you normally do, because here's the issue. It would be different if Nathan wrote you specifically a letter. You can, you can use your knowledge of Nathan and who he is and, and your relationship to interpret what he probably means in that letter. The Bible, as Nathan has said probably a million times in his life at this point, was not written to you. It was written for you, but because it's not written to you, we cannot interpret it as something that's written to to us. A great example of that. Is any time that the church is mentioned in Scripture or the gathering of the saints, yes. I many, many, many of us are going to are going to picture this right here. We're going to picture row, chair, row, rows of chairs or pews. We're going to picture maybe a cross on stage or a stage in general, We're, because that's what we as Americans call church. It's church is something we do on a Sunday, and it's in nice buildings and it's nice, nice straight rows. But that's not. <laughs> They're never
0: straight enough, my friend. They're never <laughs> Pocket, enough. no pocket.
2: Um, <laughs> so this is what we picture, but this is not even close to what they were talking about when it's mentioned in, 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 in the Bible. Now, what we're doing now isn't necessarily wrong, but it's important that we interpret correctly what they're saying. So if you read something and go, oh, yeah, like I know what that means based on the way that I've lived my life, it doesn't work that way yeah. it wasn't written to this time or this people it was written to that time and that people so to accurately interpret what it's trying to say we need to understand their culture their mind and the, the, the people that wrote it absolutely
4: because the better we understand that the more confident we are that G- god is who he said he is
0: absolutely.
4: and that we can apply him to our real lives so Um, if you're despairing, you're like, this is really complex, and I don't know, if if I don't know the ancient Hebrew tradition of how they gathered in a building, then what's the point? Mm -hmm. The point is, God never changes. Mm -hmm. And so the same God that shows up in Scripture, and the more we dig into it, the more we get to know Him. The more we get to know Him, the more confident we are in who He is.
0: It also changes us drastically when it comes to our approach to one another. So, Confirmation bias again. You're coming to a text and you're reading into it your already formed opinion. How many of you know you do this with politics now? You read a news article and you're like, I hate that guy already, so therefore this article is bad. It's negative. We do it in everything we do. When it comes to this, it will affect our relationship with each other for this reason. If you have a formulated view of church and you read the Bible and you find all the passages that confirm, stage chairs and rows pointing at a preacher and one guy is pope of everybody and all this other stuff, if you, if you go into the scripture, you're going, to, you're going to find those passages because that's what confirmation bias does. You're going to find it. If you want to go into the scripture and find justification for slavery, you're going to find it. If you want to go into the Bible and find justification for foolish doctrines, you're going to find them right? This is what the church does constantly. We find those doctrines. In our relationship with one another, what we have to do is realize, I am a person of bias. I am a person who sees my bias or wants to find confirmation for my biases because, quite honestly, if my, bi- if my belief is confirmed, I feel safer. How many of you know that? If your belief is confirmed, you feel safer. You feel like your world is at peace. You feel like things aren't disru- disrupted. The world wants that too. We want that too. Everybody wants to have peace. And so we find our particular bent in the Bible telling us what we want to hear, and then we take a deep breath. But what if we're wrong, is the question we're really trying to get at. And our relationship with each other becomes a lot healthier if we realize hey, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be reading my bias into how I believe the end times is going to work. I could be reading my bias into how salvation works. I could be reading my bias into how leadership is structured in the Bible. I could be reading my bias into men and women's roles inside of the church. I could be doing that. And if I go into it knowing that I can read my bias into it, I'm going to quickly take a step back, take a deep breath, and say, I'd love to hear your viewpoint from another perspective. I'd love to hear how you see it from a different angle. It doesn't mean you have to change your view. It doesn't mean any such thing. It just means that you're open to actually listening. And when you're open to listening, uh, you're you're actually going to see what James just talked about. You're going to see a church that loves each other, you're going to see a church that doesn't agree on everything, because quite honestly, we're talking about the greatest thing ever, which is the, uh, this is the, the uh, in a large way, the unknowable God, right? Like how can you know an infinite God when you're a finite creature? So, so we're trying to explore him and understand him in all these really uh, important ways, but we are finite creatures. And so it helps our relationship with each other because we realize I am a person of bias. I seek to confirm my bias because I just want to feel safe. But truth will make us feel the safest. It will. And truth can be found, and it might not be what you believe. I would be amazing if that was the case, you know? And then we admit it, and then we work together to sharpen each other. This is really important. This is one of the aims of what Curtis will be doing In the class is teaching how to rightly divide God's word because truth is the aim, right? Not confirming our particular bents or persuasions, right? That's not what we're after. We're after truth. And until we can arrive at that place where we know that we know that we know that we know, I think we should probably be a lot more gracious with each other. (laughs) It'd be amazing.
5: (laughs) So I have an example of that. Um, Back to talking about emphasis, When we have a confirmation bias, we have our own worldview that we can tend to read into scripture, often we're not changing the entire meaning, but we'll be putting the emphasis on something else, and if you put an exclamation point on something, it's going to almost put everything else in lowercase, you're going to miss what the point is, so we have Job 26, and verse 7, it says, he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Yes. And if we are trying to think about the worldview of our you know, modern scientific cosmology, that the earth is a sphere, it's floating in space, we would read that and go, see, the biblical authors knew that. That's awesome. That's really cool. The earth hangs on nothing. This proves that the Bible is true. And we're missing the point. I promise you the author of Job did not know that. If you read the rest of the chapter, he's talking about the pillars of heaven and the spirits yeah. um, underneath the waters trembling because that's where they thought hell was underneath the chaotic waters of the sea and the pillars of heaven. It's so obvious that that's not what he's getting at. But if that's where you put the exclamation point, you're yeah. going to miss the entire point. And the entire point is Job listing out all these different ways that God is great and how his power stretches everywhere. And that's the point, not that the earth hangs on nothing.
0: Yeah. The creation debate itself is one of the most uh, commonly abused discussions when it comes to confirmation bias. We're like, the Bible, here's, here's what you should do, church. You should, you should pause when you hear somebody say, the Bible clearly says. <laughs> you, just should. you just should. I mean, if it is clearly said that way, then wouldn't everybody agree? and yet everybody doesn't agree on things, what people are using as a rhetorical device just to simply say it, it, it seems obvious. But that is not good enough. And that's not good exegesis. It's not good rhetoric either, right? Uh, the Bible, and I, I've used it a thousand times if I've used it once, the Bible uh, clearly says, we've just got to just take pause and say, okay, what does it clearly say to you? And let's find out if that's true.
1: Right, very important. All right, gentlemen. How might different views of inspiration lead to misinterpretation of Scripture?
0: <laughs> I've got a lot to say on this, but I'll let you guys go.
2: So it, we we try to meet uh, in the in the mornings before the panel discussion just to talk about everybody's point, and um, it, we we always have good discussions. Hopefully, this opens up a good one. Um,
0: Let's rephrase. Okay. Uh, Jacob and Dylan do this okay. and sometimes it is a, sometimes it, we get it is an join. open <laughs> invitation.
2: It is an open invitation. <laughs> yes. I didn't even think I didn't even think you were here. I, I didn't see you to worship. I I had no idea.
0: He doesn't show up on time. Anyway, go ahead.
2: So so how my different views of inspiration lead to misinterpretation of scripture. Um, there's a few points here. Uh, if we believe that God literally took the writers of the scripture and like puppet mastered them to write these things down, then we are going to be, of course, we're going to hold the Bible to, to an even higher regard, but we're going, to, we're going to try to live it out word for word. I mean, literally, like everything that it says, because we're like, oh, like if God puppet mastered these guys, and their eyes rolled in the back of their head, and they just wrote what God wanted, then we obviously, we have to do everything that it says, well, that, obviously, that's not what we're, that's not what we're sp- supposed to be doing. But on the other side of that, if we believe that the writers of the Bible were not inspired by God in any way, then we're going to just kind of shrug our shoulders and be like, they just wrote whatever they wanted, so why should we listen? And not only will we not want to listen, we might, even be, um, we might even be driven to say, maybe we can add or take away, since they, you know, they, they wrote what they wanted, so maybe we can just write yeah. what we wanted. So the middle ground is realizing that they were inspired by God— not in the puppet master way, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they wrote from what they knew, from their culture, and if we can understand that, then we can rightly interpret the scripture, but if we think that God puppet mastered them, then we're going to super get legalistic, and we're going to try to follow it word for word, and then if we don't believe that it was inspired at all, then it has no authority in our lives, and we're not going to do anything about yeah. it.
0: And the discussion breaks down along the lines of of exactly what do we mean by inspiration, right? So if if God divinely dictates everything that is there, um, it doesn't make sense why, I've shared this before, it doesn't make sense why God gets an, uh, a particular number uh, through a writer in one book of the Bible, he gets it detailed. You know, forty thousand two hundred and ninety six. But then in another book, referencing the same exact count, he rounds up. Why? He forgot. he forgot. He forgot. He was rounding or something, right? Like, why is this the case? Or, or people who want to say, you know, well, if you're saying that God doesn't divinely dictate the words of the Scripture. Uh, perfectly, well then I have a problem with when he does divinely dictate words to prophets. The answer is he can do both, he just doesn't always do both. When the Apostle Paul says, I not the Lord, uh, the writers of Scripture can say what they mean and when they know it's from the Lord. Ezekiel says, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and it was this, right? And, And he spells it out. And Paul says, not, not the Lord, but I, say. Either Paul is just not aware of what's happening, or it is a very different and more nuanced version of inspiration than these oversimplified versions that people have come up with. The problem, as we have Uh, highlighted in the question is the world says well what do you mean by inspiration and half the time the church doesn't actually know what we mean by inspiration so we say we believe that God dictated everything and he gave it word for word and then when all of a sudden we have editors seen in history through the Bible and when we have translation changes and when we see things uh, change over time with with uh, language differences all of a sudden people go that's just bunk Right? This is just bunk. It's not true. And so so we've gotta be very we've gotta be far more nuanced in how we understand inspiration because those views will either lead to this hyper-legalism where we're like God said it and he put the period right here oh I forgot that Greek doesn't have punctuation like we do anyway so like we're, we're obsessed about stuff and then and then we either have the legalist view or we have the other view which is uh, who cares just make it up as you go neither of these is a good approach right
5: so yeah the biggest problem I've experienced with this is that if we believe God dictated every single word and it's just basically taken at face value in our English rendering it leaves little to no room for context to be used in this and you wouldn't do that anywhere else exactly anywhere else in life we'd always okay what was the context of that even if you hear something from a friend someone says hey so-and-so said this you'd be like okay what was the context of that what was going on that conversation no matter what we'd always do that but with scripture because we know that that would lead to a wrong understanding of whatever yeah. we're dealing with. But so in God this case, would be
0: left as not being very clear with us. Right. He should have put more context. Exactly. Yeah,
5: exactly. Exactly. And then you're talking about textual criticism. and yeah. That's a whole other.
0: There's, so there's so many arms to this. But guys, uh, it doesn't mean you have to be a scholar of, in, of what inspiration means. It just means that you have to, you have to do what you do with everything else in your life. And that is you have to study wisely. If the Bible itself says in its original language, rightly divide me, the word says, rightly divide the word of truth, if it says rightly divide me, there is a wrong way to divide the words you're reading on the page. Isn't that fascinating? Well, if God inspired it word for word and it can't be misunderstood or in in some sense it can't be misunderstood, either God is very incompetent or uh, God is now leaving inspiration in the hands of the interpreters. Ooh, that's fun. James inspired interpretation on this passage, just wing it, right? We're back to Bible studies where we say, what does this mean to you, right? It doesn't make sense.
4: So when I first got into this end of Christianity, starting talking about these things, sure. it freaked me out. <laughs> yes, okay? it does. Because you're like, I can't know anything.
5: Yes.
4: Right? Because it could be some crazy monk somewhere who had drunk something wrong, and now we don't know what <laughs> Jesus really meant when he... Yes. No, that's not what we're saying.
0: Amen.
4: We're saying we lean into this stuff, <laughs> and it takes about a year. Okay, if you haven't done this before, it takes about a year to figure out how to see when a historical narrative is a historical narrative. And a poetry is poetry, yeah. and figurative language is figurative language, and, and that's what Curtis is doing, yep. is, is giving us the clues of, oh, okay, once I've got the ABCs of this thing, then I'm good. It opens up. And it all opens up, and it
0: builds my faith, and I am more confident and more assured. And your view of inspiration allows for God to inspire hyperbole. God to inspire alliteration, God to inspire uh, a, a sarcasm or a figurative language, God to inspire poetry as well as historical narrative. This is a much bigger view of inspiration than God gave you every single word and they went into a trance and wrote it down, or whatever people, uh, just yeah.
6: Uh On the light end of that subject, too, I, to me, I have to... I'm not as smart as a lot of these guys. Okay, I need to, I need to, I need to dumb things down a little bit. But I love. I mean, obviously, I, I love worship. I love, I love the Psalms, and we're talking about imagery and, and all these things. You just mentioned like poetry, like the Psalms have this beautiful, uh, like, imagery in them that can be misinterpreted really easily. But it's inspired by what they're dealing with. So I wrote a song one time uh, that came out of like Psalm. 90-something. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. But David was dealing with, like, defeat, and he found comfort under a willow tree. Like, like they don't have to write these details. They they took some liberties on, on things just to talk about what's going on in their life. Like, they were inspired by certain things. But for me, just to kind of go back at all this, it's really easy when you look at something like that. I feel like we can for me, me speaking, it's easy to wrap your head around, oh, no, that's just what they're talking about in that context, and I don't need to read something deeper into this. Mm -hmm. But sometimes there is imagery that is, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, time, you know, in the time period of certain things. And you have to take that and just really dive into what it is. Is this something that is poetically written? Or is this something that is factual to the time that they're in? Or is this something that you can just apply to different circumstances
3: in your life? So, like for me, that's important. Very cool. So, if we took the uh, the amount of English translations of the Scripture that we have today, which is based on who you talk to, it could be in the hundreds, or it's a lot. Uh, If you, if we hold to the view that God gives you this word for word download as a writer of the Scripture back thousands of years ago and you got some real problems with some of the translations that are english translations and uh, by the way it was so interesting i thought i'd got a a i would got ai thought i'd got a word from the lord but it was just a text from brittany back in the back okay telling, <laughs> telling me to tell you to take your mic and put it cuz you're losing signal from time was to it time inspired, it was though? it was i think it was inspired because brittany is very inspiring she's very <laughs> inspiring i think it was well, right, oh, so, I agree with that. I just, that's so, a very curious way to do that. But uh, all joking aside, <laughs> if you take some of the things, uh, I would encourage you, if you want to do a little, uh you want to see this better, go to the, translation of the scripture, now I'm holding my hand over the, my. now, uh, thank you, Adam. Uh, you are smarter than you think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go to a translation, just look it up, you can go on the internet and get it, it's called Young's Literal Translation, the YLT. It will blow your mind because it doesn't, it, it doesn 't take anything out of it takes the the tense it gets the tense right, so if it was something that happened and all of the Bible by the way, was written some thousands of years ago, so it doesn 't act like it just happened today, so it everything is in the correct tense, so if it was past tense then and all of the Bible is past tense, it was past tense they they wrote it that way so it's it 's just weird like that, but i, I Believe me when I tell you, it'll blow your mind when you think, did God just give us some kind of download on this thing? Did God take writers and just say, well, you've talked about that a lot, Nathan. It just didn't didn't happen that way. I think about when I read Paul, Paul was one of the most brilliant men that that history's ever known. But, man, when he wrote things, it was absolutely awe-inspiring to me. Just his writing. I don't care if he said what he said. Look at the way Paul does things, and that he knew his audience, and, and God used him. He inspired Paul to write using all the quirky things that Paul did <laughs> to inspire the Word of God. I think that's a I think that's amazing. And you can't get a text from God, by the way. I just wanted you to know. So it it did come from Brittany. I just checked. So
0: next question, sir.
1: All right, our next question is going to be: Give an example of non-believers' misinterpretation of Scripture. That if they don't understand that Jesus is the interpretive key.
0: Let me uh, clarify the question a little bit for you guys. We believe as Christians that everything we read in scripture uh, requires now, requires us understand uh, understand it through the lens of King Jesus, right? We, we understand this. So if you really want to know what the Father looks like, the Scripture says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How many of you know that? If you look at Jesus, that's, that's a, re- a direct representation of God. If you want to know the love of the Father, look to what Jesus does, and you'll see the love of the Father. If you want to see the forgiveness of Jesus... Uh, if you want to see the forgiveness of the father look to Jesus and you will see that so Jesus is the interpretive key uh, fancy word hermeneutical key for everything Uh, he is the interpretive key but the world doesn't always see that right so the world looks at things and says well I've read the Bible and I see a mean God in the Old Testament how many of you've heard that why are they seeing that that way they're not reading it through the lens of who Jesus is. The scripture actually says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we should be able to find clear evidence in the Old Testament of the image that Jesus shows us when he walks the earth. Guess what? We do see that. You know who the problem was in the story of Jonah? Jonah, not Nineveh. (laughs) Nineveh, Nineveh was wrong. They were sinning. But God was seeking to forgive them and to love them and to show compassion on them, right? You know that that's true? And so he sends his messenger. But what does his messenger want to do? He wants God to put the the screws to them. He wants him to get revenge on these people because that's what we are. We're not a people who actually want justice. We're actually people who want revenge. That's our problem, right? So, so. God sends Jonah to preach righteousness and forgiveness and repentance. And Jonah goes, no way, I want him to burn. Who is the problem in the story? It's Jonah. What is God displaying himself as? The merciful God that is just like King Jesus. Because it is King Jesus, right? What does he even do to Jonah who disobeys him? Shows him mercy swallows him with a fish. I don't know how you want to interpret it, but he swallows him with a fish and he makes him realize this is a problem. And then Jonah repents and then Jonah calls them to repentance and guess what? Everybody repents. It doesn't last very long, but everybody repents. It's really awesome. So if the world doesn't see that Jesus is the lens through which to see God, they're going to read the Old Testament the way the skeptics read the Old Testament. A God who condones genocide, a God who, uh, or commissions genocide, a God who condones slavery, a God who, right? Because they're not seeing it in the right way.
2: So, a, a great example of the non-believers misinterpreting scripture based off not understanding Jesus as kind of the uh, the codex or the uh, the code breaker. Um, of the scripture is, you know, very, very regu- regularly, as believers, we are accused of cherry picking scripture. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that, but that's a very normal thing. Especially when we make st- statements such as, "gay marriage is wrong," "slavery is wrong," all of these things. It's all, it, people always ex- non-believers. They come back and say, "Okay, well, if you say that gay marriage is wrong, then why are you wearing uh, fabric that's mixed? Why are you eating shellfish? Why are you eating pork? Why are you not sacrificing animals?" because they don't understand Jesus and what what he has done in scripture to make it where those things are no longer things that we have to worry about under the new covenant so they look and say oh well you say that gay marriage is wrong so if that's wrong then you need to be doing everything else that it says and they almost try to use it as a smoking gun and as Nathan brought up earlier when he was he was back there with us too at 830 by the way it wasn't just me Jacob but um, he brought up that like not only is it not a a smoking gun, but it could it can be for people that are not when the, for people that don 't also understand that Jesus is that interpret or interpreting key for that so it 's important that you know as believers that we understand that so when we are faced with people that don 't understand that we can we can right rightfully uh, acknowledge that and teach them that because there's many 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 unbelievers out there that will they they know like just enough of scripture to be like, hey, like you're living your life completely wrong, and you're like, well, probably, but not in the way that you think. Like, yeah. so it, it's just you see that a lot in the uh, in the secular world.
4: Well, one I ran into a bunch uh, younger in my life out on the west coast was there is a lot more of an open community of like Satanists and stuff, sure. and they would talk a lot about you know the devil and a third of the angels and and. Uh, and there's all that power. And, right. and I'm like, uh, okay, so the devil's outnumbered two to one, right. and that's before Jesus shows up. <laughs> right. So let's hold that in perspective, right? right? And that even boils over in lots of simple areas of life. Uh, the devil made me do it is a common vernacular, right? It's, this, it's kind of worked into the culture that there's this um, dark power under okay. everything bad that happens.
0: And hard truth, you made you do it. Okay, moving on. (laughs) That's awesome. That is a very good point, James, because we tend to to lose hope if we don't see Jesus as the interpretive key because he is also our victor. He is also the one who has provided us uh, a guaranteed victory. So let's go to the next question. All
1: right. How has misinterpretation led to division in the church?
0: Are you guys interested in that question? Seriously, like misinterpretation has caused division. Some people just come into church and they're like, Nathan, can't we just, uh, Barney, can't we just come in and hear a rah-rah message about Jesus and go home? Not in a culture that is growing in its skepticism day by day. No, you cannot. You should know that Jesus is for you. You should know that Jesus loves you. You should be reminded that he died for you. But you should also realize that if you don't interpret the scripture right, you're going to add to the problem in our world, or if you don't at least remain humble that there are differing interpretations and you need to have a good dialogue and discussion about it, you're going to add to the chaos in our world, and people are going to continue to believe uh, continue to lack belief or run from belief in God on a regular basis. We must be a people who stop our constant divisions and constant fighting and, uh, focus on, uh, focus on loving one another and loving God and loving our neighbor, right? Loving people. Uh, this is a fascinating realization to me and maybe it's, maybe it's something you've already known. But, you know, in the New Testament, uh, The far majority of the books are written to the church. Did you know that? The far majority of the books are written to the church. Guess what that means about the interpretation of the New Testament? It is not a book written to unsaved people trying to get them saved. It is a book written to saved people trying to get them to get along. Isn't that fascinating? The entire book of Galatians is not a book written to an unbelieving world trying to get them to wake up. It is a book written to believing Jews and believing Gentiles and telling them that under Jesus, they're one. You're actually united, but y'all can't act like it because you keep fighting over interpretations of things, of, of the scripture. Guys, wrong interpretation leads to most of our squabbles, most of our fights. Now, do I say, therefore, there is no truth, so let's just wing it. No, there's truth. But we should, again, have a lot more of a humble heart when it comes to differing views than our own. But we don't. We go, no way. My creed, my confession says this, and you disagree. That's it. You're going to hell. I'm going to create a new church down the road. That's what we do. That's what we do. Because here's another truth that you need to understand. The church is not really interested in planting churches in today's world. They're not in America. They're not interested in planting churches to see a lost world saved. They're interested in planting churches so that their brand of Jesus gets to be what is known in the city. It's about branding. It's about modern nonsense. It's not about mission to a dying and a lost world. So what we do is we say, we've got it all right. We've put our stuff together. We have our creed, our confession, our doctrinal statements, and we're going to come here, and we're going to show this truth to you, and we're going to rescue you from the darkness that is Baptists. We're going to rescue from the darkness that is Catholicism. The rescue from the darkness that is the Presbyterians. This is just branding, guys. This is just branding. And we're guilty of it constantly. This misinterpretation, these ideas of misinterpretation have led to most of the divisions in the church. And it is precisely why the New Testament is written. To get God's people to get along. And to bring them back to a truth that actually wrecks each and every one of us. That we're forgiven sinners. Did you know that? I don't think you know it. Did you know you're a forgiven sinner? Look to the person next to you and at least tell them they're a forgiven sinner. Yes, yeah. I knew you'd get on board with that one, right? Looking in the mirror is a hard thing. But the truth is, this is is a forgiveness message to sinners. And God has come to rescue us and the world around us. But all we ever do is just squabble and fight and try to one-up each other in our intellectual awesomeness, right? It's just bad
2: so you you mentioned uh, humility there, and you know the the question is how has misinterpretation led to division in the church so you know you could you could pick any doctrine, and I guarantee you there is a church that has been been created because somebody disagreed. The issue that we run into is we know that misinterpretation is running rampant in the church, but why is it causing division because I guarantee you not all of us sit here, are sitting here are like-minded in every single way possible. We're just not. Close. We're going to disagree on, on some things, and that's okay. Yes. But why hasn't it called division? Why, why are we not like at each other's throats? It's because we, we, we humble ourselves and say, you know what, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Maybe I don't have all the answers. <gasps> Nathan doesn't have all the answers. You mean
0: I you? don't know is legitimate illegitimate answer?
2: <laughs> it's it's the, it's the best answer. It's the most <laughs> humble answer when you actually don't know. Yes. But the Amen. issue is is, unfortunately... As the church, as the body of Christ, instead of saying, I don't know, or instead of saying, you know what, maybe I should sit down and, and actually see what the Bible says instead of what I think it says, we decide we're just going to make another church where we can have people believe exactly what we believe. Because yeah. what it takes is humility for us to sit down and say, hey, Nathan, I've got a differing view on you with, than you with this subject. Let's sit, sit down and really tear apart the Bible and see what it says. Because at the end of the day, we're supposed to be a unified body. Yes. All of these denominations, it, all it does is continue to bring division because, oh, they believe that uh, tongues are for this and the Holy Spirit does this, and it's like, that, that's, not, that's not what it's for. It's, it's yes. Really, it's a, it's a call to humility for us to sit down and say, let's look at it together. Yes, amen.
0: I think uh, Ethan brought up a point in the back room. Ethan was there too. Anyway, so uh, Ethan brought up a point just for a little bit, but he brought up a point that it, there's a big difference between division in the church and just disagreement. There's a big difference between division in the church and disagreement. Uh, Curtis asked me uh, when we started the series, and we started. Ask, I started probing into honestly dangerous territory with these things but started probing into this and Curtis said you know what what's your end game with all this like what are you going to do when you have an entire church full of people who actually are are looking at this in a scholarly level or or they're looking at this and saying but hold on I see it this way and I said I plan to have lots of conversations I love to have conversations. I love that world. I do not think, and this is important because I'm just using the language Dylan had, I do not think I need to be in a church where everybody agrees with me. I also don't think that my opinion on everything has to govern the way our church views things, right? That's not a healthy way either. Uh, That's usually uh, the Protestant Pope version, right? So one person is the grand poobah. I would love to have a church, Where people say, I disagree with you, but we can have good conversations about those disagreements. I have tried deeply with people that have said, I disagree with you on this. And I've said, let's have the conversation. And it is often met with people going, nope, I can't stay here. I can't be in a church where this is taught. And it's like, okay, that's really sad. That's really sad. And so it, it often looks to the average congregant, it looks like people just leaving because they get into a fight with leadership or something like this. No, oftentimes it comes down to people who just say, I don't want to have a continuing conversation. I believe what I believe, it makes me feel safe, and I disagree with you, so I'll find a place where I can hold to that and still feel safe. We need to make sure that we feel safe even when we disagree. Amen? That's an important thing. How many of you agree with me on everything? No hand better go up, right? It's, it's funny. It's a sarcastic, goofy statement, right? And you all know it's actually true. But there are some areas where you're like, man, if I disagree here, right, there's a panic or a fear there. You shouldn't have that. You just shouldn't have that. We should be a people that can have a conversation and talk about things and talk about where we disagree and not end in a fight. I think that's important. Last question, right? Unless you have a point.
1: All right, last question. Uh, Before I get into it, Michael, will you go get the elementary and preschool and have them come on in here? In
0: other words, rescue the teachers.
1: (laughs) So our last question is, give an example of how correct interpretation changed your relationship with God or others. So I'm going to go first. Let's
0: do this as a lightning round and just rock it with with this quick.
1: Uh, There was a point in my... uh, Several years ago, I was really struggling with one aspect of my relationship. I was doubting whether God would move in a way, and so it made me start to wonder and doubt in my relation in my faith as a whole in God. And uh, I went to Nathan, and we looked at Mark nine. And the father uh, in that part of Scripture, the father is bringing his demon possessed son to Jesus and his disciples to get him. Uh, get the demons removed and as Jesus is talking to the father the father says you know if you can do this and Jesus goes if and the (laughs) father goes no I believe Lord but help me with my unbelief and it was something that has really shook me down to my core as like yes I can doubt in one area but I'm praying that Lord you've you help with the unbelief that I have, uh, because I still truly believe in you.
0: Amen. So you can have faith in God, and you can struggle in areas with doubt, and yet still be a follower. Yeah, it's very important.
2: Um, I I want to go back to my my scripture for the first question. Out of I think it was John 14 verse 13 that talks about you know asking things in Jesus' name and, and they'll be given to you. You know when when I mi- would misinterpret that, it would push me away from God and not trust him as much. But if you rightly interpret that and understand that as a heavenly father, as a, as a good father, the Lord may not always give you what you want, but as any good father, he will give you what you need. And that causes you to trust him more, which then builds your faith and allows you to rely on him in every circumstance.
0: That's
4: awesome. Um, I think for me, it's when I was going through intense times, struggling with grief and I was clinging to verses like, his mercies are new every morning, sure. his grace is sufficient. And I was constantly running into, it doesn't, where's the mercy, where's the grace? It was right here yesterday. Now, it's not there anymore. Yeah. And it's because I was clinging to the object that the grace was coming into instead of constantly looking to the Father. That's, that's awesome. Because it moved. It was yeah. in different people. It was in different members of the community. But when you understood that rightly, all of a
0: sudden it was like, yeah. look for it. He's there." Yeah, and then the my
4: pan—when I met, felt panic. I would look
0: to—that's beautiful. Get That's my beautiful. eyes up.
4: Yeah. I think for me, simply
6: kind of touching on what Jacob was just saying is—is it's, I can't even emphasize enough how how real it is that is like a professional Christian. Mm-hmm. So many times I don't want to be here, <laughs> <laughs> and and like. Like I struggle constantly, God, yes. and I, and like it's it's hard. And then I've I've learned just so much over the years that it's literally not about me in the slightest. Yeah. And and that has like been my biggest thing is anytime I think that oh it's just going to be you know hugs and rainbows and kisses all day long, you know I realize that no my comfort's in the Lord and and He's going to be giving me peace, but I'm still going to struggle with it. Yes. And th- just hearing scripture in that sense where it applies to that drives me forward in, in a way that just over the years it makes me go okay I, I don't want to be here but God I, I do believe you're worthy yes. so even though I'm struggling right now I'm not going to not give you what you
0: deserve so you have bad days all the time oh my goodness anyway not real Christian go, no, go for it Sorry. You can go ahead. He's, he's sneaking, sneaking his way in I tell you
3: I, just, I think for me it is the John 3.16 story, but, but, but when awesome. I think about the scripture that says that uh, God made Jesus become sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. God displayed his love for us. He didn't just say in, a, in words, it's not just words on a page. God loves you. God loves you. He displayed that love. He sent his son to die on a cross to display that love.
5: I've had close friends tell me that uh, it's something simple. It might seem simple if you've been a Christian for a long time, but it's often that we are Christians for such a long time that we don't remember the the minor we would consider minor revelations that we had in the beginning. But when they found out that you know, in order to be forgiven, you have to forgive. That was that was huge <laughs> for them, and it was an ideology that they were taught. In the, in the contrary, they, you know, they weren't taught that. They were kind of taught that, you know, you only had to forgive somebody if they asked for forgiveness, really. Right. But they were a victim of a, a horrible crime, and they had to forgive this person that had wronged them in a very real way. And that was huge for them. And when that happened, the whole flip switch. But for me personally, the biggest benefit I've had in everything we've talked about up here is just learning that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions of a worldview that you have, and it's okay to not be firmly established in your own worldview. If you need to anchor yourself in something, if you need to have security in something, put it in what Christ has done. Put it in his work on the cross. Put it in his life. Put it there. That's where it should be. If it's anywhere else, you're in trouble, and honestly, that's where a lot of our division comes from is we put our security and knowing an answer to everything. Our security is in, our, in our, our theological system. Our security is in, I have to know the answer to this. And if somebody thinks this answer is wrong, well, that's a problem because now I'm insecure. What if there's other things I don't know? Yeah. Put your security and what Christ did on the cross and you will have a very happy life. Amen.
0: I think for me, guys, uh, my views of God have always been, um, they've always been in flux in his characteristics, right? And so when I was young, I I remember just, Wanting, I wanted wisdom. I wanted wisdom because I wanted to understand who God was, and I knew that I was far removed from it. Right, and I remember this passage in scripture that has forever changed who I am. The, the scripture says that in God justice and mercy have met together or in him justice and mercy have kissed and this is a challenge for people in the church today and in the world today is God a just God or is God a merciful God and the answer is yes (laughs) right and so you you teeter both ways right you're like you're like "I, I read these passages of scripture and I only read them and I misinterpret some and I read that God is going to smite sinners and he can't put up with unrighteousness and they must all die you know and, and so we can construct an entire worldview of a God who is just this giant megalomaniac cosmic bully who 's crushing people right everybody 's afraid of the lightning bolt that 's going to strike when they do something wrong. so on one side, we have a just God that 's perverted and then and for me, I, I wrestled with that side, and then I wrestled with the side that God was a merciful God and that he wanted to be my buddy, and he just wanted to sit and cuddle me and hold me and gather me under him like a chick gathers her. Her, uh, her chick, you know, her babies. And so, and so there's this idea of the hyper-mercy side of God where uh, you just have this perverted view of God that he has no standard. Right? He's just, he has no standard at all. He doesn't even care when you screw up. It's just mercy, 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 mercy. And so both of these have, uh, I've struggled with. right? And then when you see that they have kissed together, they've met together, all of a sudden a right interpretation, the whole of God's word, Psalm 119, 160, the whole of God's word giving us truth, the, everything together, all of a sudden you see that God is a God of a very high standard, and He is a God of immense mercy. That when we don't meet that standard, He has met us with one who meets the standard perfectly. He has met us with one who loves us more than we love Him. He has met us with a faithful one in our faithlessness. Like, this is an unbelievable God, right? And when you see that, you can look at somebody and you say, You can say, That is wrong and it does not please the Father. And you've not constructed a bully, right? And you can also look at somebody and say, God deeply loves you because you would bear his image. And you've not constructed a God who doesn't care about standards, right? You construct a God, or the Bible constructs it for you, a God who is both in one. A God who deeply loves you and has called you to a standard, called you to a glory that is amazing when you reflect your, his image rightly. So all of these questions are important, and this whole series has been extremely important because a right interpretation of scripture uh, and a search for a right interpretation of scripture, which is how we know God, by the way, guys, uh, is going to lead to better conversations with a lost and dying world. It's going to lead to a peaceful existence among believers. It's going to lead to a very different church, the church that God actually describes in the Scripture and not our caricatures of it. So I hope that you will join Curtis tonight. I hope that you will join our church as we move forward. I hope that you will put yourself, uh, trust entrust yourself to these guys and other leaders that we are developing um, because... Because we are supposed to sharpen each other, we're supposed to grow, and we're supposed to fight for really what the truth is. We need that truth. The truth will set us free. Not any truth. God's truth is what will set us free. Amen? Awesome. Give these guys a hand.